0: You know, one of the things that I find amusing that people like to do, although I, as an aesthetic I find it kind of annoying, is make use of what I call vestigial decorations. These are things that are imitations of stuff that we used to have, that used to be real, but they aren't that anymore and they don't serve that purpose, they just serve the purpose of I guess, bringing back memories of, I don't know, a bygone era or something like that. I'll give you an example. Um, consider, you drive around places and you have these houses, and I think this is, I think this is something that maybe was even being done back in the in the 70s, I don't know, um, but it's certainly done on certain uh, new houses today if you go into the newer neighborhoods and stuff. Um, And it's not ubiquitous, but it's kind of an option that you might be offered by a builder. They've got these shutters, they call them. What they actually are are fake shutters. They'll just say, do you want shutters? And they're pieces of molded plastic that they attach to the house on either side of the window to resemble what used to be a real thing on houses, which are shutters that you could swing shut over the windows. And the idea used to be that houses didn't have things like forced air systems and stuff like that. So there might be times when you still need to allow air exchange within the house and the outside, you want the air to be able to come in. And so you could open your window and then pull the shutters closed. And if it's raining or or whatever, um, the rain would be deflected. The the shutter had a, uh, like a louvered um, slats that would deflect downward away from the house away from the room when they were closed and so any rain would hit those and fall away from the house but you could still get air into the house and that sort of thing or in some more extreme cases if it was storming really hard i think maybe older glass um sometimes used to be more fragile um or that maybe they didn't have proper glass, they might use something else. And so you might have to protect that. And so you might have a shutter uh, for a very violent storm or something. I don't know if that ever was what they use them for, but I think mostly it's so that they could keep the window open and still have air coming into the room, even if it was raining or storming outside. So now they take these plastic molded things and they stick them on either side of a window and they call them shutters. Well, um, they're not really shutters and they're, like I said, aesthetically, I, I, I think they're kind of dumb anyway. But um, if you look at them, for example, they, uh, a lot of times they're attached to the house so that the slats are angled away from the house downward while the shutters are on the side of the window. Well, if you think about it, they're supposed to be angled downward away from the house when they're on the, uh, when they're closed over the window so that when they open up, those same slats would be angled downward towards the house while they're laying against the house open. So when you look at shutters on houses today and see those slats angled downward while they're on the side of the house, to the extent that they look like real shutters at all, they look like shutters that have been installed, I don't know, backwards or upside down or something like that. Um, another thing you commonly see is that they're the wrong size. So the idea is that the shutters are supposed to be so that when you swing them shut, they cover the window exactly. They meet right in the middle and then you can latch them and cover the window. But these shutters are often way too small to cover the window. Sometimes they'll have like a fairly big window and then these tiny little shutters on either side. Or, Sometimes if it's a very, very narrow window, the shutters might be too big so that if you did try to close them, they would overlap and not close properly. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know, if somebody, like somebody's third grader got his crayons out and drew a house with a third grader's sense of proportions, and then he took that drawing to a builder and said, hey, I want you to build me this house or something like that. Anyway, that's that's an example. I'll give you another example of vestigial... Uh, decorations. Um, a lot of times in in new construction, again, we're talking about houses, an option that a builder might give you is to have a keystone in the, uh, if you're getting like a brick wrap on the front, a brick um, facade on the front of your house, or, or a wrap that even goes all the way around, over the garage door, and maybe over major windows as well, they have to put a like a two a um angle iron uh brace to hold the bricks to lay the bricks over and um a lot of times what they'll do is offer to have a keystone what they call a keystone it's it's just usually like a i don't know a limestone um trapezoidal um piece of of stone that they put in there on that row of bricks with the the Uh, narrow end of the trapezoid facing downward, and then the bricks are on either side uh, going out from it. Well, this is a holdover from when keystones were a real thing because a lot of times doorways were built as arches. And if you know anything about arches, you you start with a column of uh, two vertical columns of stones, get up to whatever height, and then you start building with an equal number of these trapezoid shaped stones with the the narrow trapezoid end facing down towards the center um, of the doorway so that as they build, they form a curve towards each other up at the top. And then at the very end, the very center one is a a larger um, trapezoid that sits in and then that completes the arch. And once that arch is completed, it can bear whatever load you put on top of it because the whole load is distributed down through those stones into the vertical columns. And so um, the arch itself will hold to whatever weight is capable of crumbling the stones. It's The, the arch isn't going to um, give away mechanistically. So anyway, now I guess people, I don't know, they find it cute or quaint or cute because it's quaint or something like that to take a keystone and stick it in a horizontal row of bricks over a doorway uh, or over a window. Again, aesthetically, I, I think it's kind of dumb looking myself, but it's something that people like to do. I, I don't, I, you know, it's kind of amusing that they like to do that. Hey, yeah, let's let's pretend that that this horizontal row of bricks is actually an arch and we'll put a keystone in it. Um, let's pretend that we like to have our windows open during the rain and put shutters on either side or something. Um, and even, even inside the house, you find things like this. Um, for example, clocks these days might have pendula. Well, it used to be that clocks had real pendula, that a clock would have a pendulum that swung back and forth and the pendulum itself was... Uh, a a long pole with a medallion or or some kind of weight on the end a lot of times that was adjustable so that the clockmaker in terms of height so the clockmaker could set it just right because the length of the pendulum has to do with the uh, length of time that it takes for the swing back and forth and the clockmaker would have to adjust that to get it so that each swing back and forth was exactly one second or something like that whatever it is that the clock was tuned to and then at the top, the pendulum was me- mechanistically connected to gears and ratchets that released a coiled spring um, into the motion of the hands so that the clock would tell time. And every night or every week or something like that, you'd have to go in and rewind it with a key and the that would just coil the spring back up. Or some, sometimes, like if you've ever seen one of these old, you might be able to get one of these still. Um, I, I think, I think it's illegal in Germany to produce them the, in the traditional style that has the, the hunting guns, but they're called hunter clocks, and they used to have two guns across the top, but they're kind of very decorative, uh, cuckoo clocks, actually. And every hour a, a bird would, you know, come out and cuckoo. But those also had pendula. Usually that was a little bit of a shorter pendulum that swung back and forth, but instead of a coiled spring, they would have a couple of weights on chains and so every day or, or every other day or whatever it's it's made for you would have to grab the chains and pull them and pull the 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 empty part of the chain so that the weights rose back up to the top and then the weights uh provided the energy to keep the clock uh moving but anyway um now you can go buy a pendulum clock and and you can spend a lot of money on one if you want like if you go to some of these places that that do the uh the engraved gifts and stuff like that you you know you might get an engraved gift that is a pendulum clock and it's supposed to to look real special and expensive um but what it's not a pendulum clock at all in fact it's it's a standard electric clock that you stick a battery in and then it tells time using you know whatever quartz timer or something like that and then separately behind it often in another compartment that you have to stick a second battery in is a thing that that drives a pendulum it might be a swing swinging back and forth pendulum or sometimes they have those uh, clocks that are in those uh, glass domes and the pendulum instead of swinging back and forth it's like a spindle that comes down, and, and then there's like four balls or something, and it'll spin one direction, and then slow, and then turn and spin the other direction. Those are the same ideas, and those are reminiscent of the ways that real pendulum once, real pendulum clocks once were created. Um, but you know, now the, they take. I guess I can see why they do it. People like it for some reason um i find that interesting but they can take maybe ten dollars worth of parts and uh slap those together and put an engraving on it and sell it for i don't know 160 dollars maybe um and then somebody thinks they've gotten a really nice gift whereas if you wanted to build a real pendulum clock and set up a manufacturing line and have all the parts and the mechanisms i you know probably cost at least $80, maybe $150 per clock. And then obviously you're not going to be able to sell those for $120 and make any profit. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that we should all go back to real pendulum, cl- pendulum clocks. Um, but, you know, why why have a pendulum that does nothing? In fact, it, it does the opposite of what the pendulum was supposed to do. Um, because the pendulum was supposed to release energy and provide the momentum to keep the clock going. Now, all the pendulum does is suck additional energy from an additional battery just to look, like I said, whatever it is it's supposed to look like, quaint or whatever. I don't know. So, vestigial decorations. You know, it's like, I'm thinking, what if I wanted to build a house and instead of a peaked roof where you've got a, a ridge down along the, the center. Uh, and then the roof slopes maybe towards the front and towards the back. And then you have, of course, a gutter on each side, catch rainwater running off the roof. So let's say I have a roof that is like high in the front and then it's slopes to- towards the back. So it's, it's flat, but it slopes towards the back, high in the front, low in the back. And then I decided, you know what? a uh, horizontal roof line looks like it should have a gutter. So I'm going to put a gutter on the front even though though all the water runs towards the back. That's kind of what that's like. Of course, now that I've said that, builders will probably, you know, start coming up with like a style that looks like that or something. Or maybe I could, you know, take my car and, you know, when you used to get a car, there's old, pretty old cars, and they used to have a choke control uh, right under the the dash panel and the uh it was a a knob usually that you might pull out or or and push in so you might maybe pull it out to choke your car which means deprive oxygen from the the carburetor so that the uh fuel mixture was more rich that had more uh gasoline versus the amount of oxygen and often you needed that in order to get it to start up you still see some of that on on uh small engine appliances today like um maybe lawnmowers or or um uh weed eaters and stuff like that. You- you have to prime it up, and then a lot of times, or chainsaws or whatever, you might have to, to move a switch into a choke position. And usually it automatically unchokes when it's time. Like once you have it started, it's fine to unchoke it, and you, you uh, pull the throttle trigger, and that unchokes it, and then you can run it. But with cars, you used to have to choke it to get it started, and then once it was started, you, you could you would unchoke it some, but you might not unchoke it all the way, until the engine warmed up a little bit and then you could unchoke it all the way and let the carburetor take over its natural, uh, mixture. But one could imagine a car, you know, coming out today with a choke lever under the instrument panel just for, for show. I mean, that, that's about as much sense to me as, as these other examples make. You play with it, pull it out, push it in, pretend you're choking it while you drive or something. I don't know. Maybe you could, you could have, I mean, it's hard to find a car these days with a manual transmission anymore. Although now they have these, these, uh, what do they call them? Like paddle shifters. That, that's just stupid in my opinion too. But I, I could imagine where they have a car where you've got the, the gear shifter. Maybe it's, maybe they put the gear shifter back on the column. But for those who like to pretend that they're driving a manual shift, you could have like a shifter that does nothing over, like between the two seats and then maybe a clutch that's just spring-loaded but doesn't actually do anything. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just uh, going on about stuff. Anyway, you know, there is, a, there is a, a vestige that we have in Western society today that's pretty important, and that's Marriage. Marriage has become kind of like all of these other examples of vestigial decorations that I've been talking about. If you look at what marriage actually is, marriage is the commitment of a man and woman to stay together. And it's not even their commitment that makes the marriage. What marriage is, is a state and a proclamation and a approval by in front of and by the couple proclaims in front of and then society in front of society and society approves the union and gives that union gives that man and woman and and their agreement to stay together permission to have sex. And the reason that society presumes to give permission to have sex is, of course, because children come from sex and society has an interest in making sure that children are cared for now this is you know as soon as i say this the red flags go off even in my own mind and i'm sure in other people's mind and people will say well wait a minute though we get need to be real careful not to make it sound like children belong to society at large and society at large has responsibility for caring for the children no that that's not It, um, of course, the parents have responsibility for caring for the children. It belongs to the parents to care for children in a manner that the parents see fit. But the parents owe it to society at large and to the children to take it upon themselves to give considered thought and energy to what it means to properly raise a child and to care for a child. In other words, for a parent to just neglect a child and say, well, this is how I see fit, that doesn't work. And I'm just trying to point out that marriage is not purely personal. Marriage is not purely religious. Marriage is anthropological. It's societal. It's something that's built into the the core of of what it has become to be human, whether or not we accept the the definition of human as as purely biological and evolutionary, or whether we accept it as as something more than that spiritual, this impulse for marriage is built in. It's it's something that all of us have. Uh, not that all of us seem called to get married, but the idea of what marriage is for is something that's built into the human person. And it's for making sure that children that arise out of the act of sex have a place to be cared for. And it's also built around this recognition that for a child to be properly cared for, he needs a father and a mother. Uh, It doesn't mean that every child's going to have an ideal situation. Sometimes the father dies, sometimes the mother dies, sometimes both die. And that's why societies have come up with various systems of say, orphanages and and stuff like that. And some of them have been better than others. Some of them have been downright cruel. Um, But it doesn't detract from the ideal and from the reality of what marriage is and what marriage is for. But today, Western society sees marriage as something very different than that. Uh, For one thing, they seem to separate marriage and sex. You know, marriage is society's permission for a man and a woman to go have sex together. And today, um, marriage is often expected to come after the couple have been having sex for some time. In fact, couples are encouraged by many in Western society to shack up together before getting married. Well, if they're going to do that anyway, then why bother to get married? Or... They're, you know, so it, it, there's a sort of culture out there right now of sort of playing the field. Um, a lot of times you'll even see it in movies and stuff, you, you know, somebody else, some, a woman will be talking to her friend about a guy that, that, you know, she's dating or whatever. And, and they'll show that, that as an expected part of their dating life, they um, go to bed, together you know one will stay over the other's house or whatever and, and stuff and she'll be talking to her friend and her friend will say something like do you love him and then she'll have to think about that well you know the, this it's it's almost like being portrayed as normal and I don't know whether this is something that is sort of deliberate through some kind of agenda say on Hollywood's part to portray this as normal to try to 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 get us into the mindset of the vestigial decoration, to get us to see the fake shutters on the house as normal, or if Hollywood themselves are so far gone as well that they don't actually get the, the irony and the silliness of what they're presenting in these kinds of situations. But, of course, the other thing is that we as a society have divorced the idea of children and sex too. So now the expectation is that sex is for the purpose of fun purely. Um I mean, people will say, well, yeah, but it's a connection or it's, you know, whatever. Um Bottom line, though, is that people are encouraged to go out and have sex without having children yet. It's okay to have sex as long as you... I don't know. Some people will even say, as long as you know to treat it seriously. Well, what does that mean? If treat it seriously doesn't mean wait until you're married, what does it mean? Does it mean, you know, you have to have a, a eight out of 10 level of, of feelings of infatuation for someone before you have sex with them? What does treat it seriously mean? But thing is, they say it's okay to have sex as long as you treat it seriously. But you got to keep yourself from having children. So let's get you on some regimen of birth control or train you to make sure that he knows how to use a condom right or whatever, all that kind of stuff. But the bottom line is we as a society have divorced this idea of sex and children. Well, if sex and children are divorced from, you know, the in terms of consequences and causation, then that also kind of separates and divorces the idea of marriage from sex and leaves marriage as sort of this disconnected pendulum that's just there to sort of look pretty. Now, people will say and object, um, people who, who kind of don't get it will object, well, wait a minute, there's more involved in marriage than just having children and and having sex because being married also carries with it certain tax implications or uh inheritance implications and stuff like that well well okay yeah that's but you know those those tax implications first of all that's that's a very recent thing um as the individual income tax at least in the united states is a very recent thing um when there was no individual income tax then there were no individual income tax implications for being married or not, and it's only because somehow the government figured out a way around, you know, uh, what what was not intended to be a, a, a proper mode of taxation in the Constitution, um, and now we have this individual income tax. Well, then society at least had enough smarts then to say wait a minute we, we need to if a guy's married we need to give them a little bit of a break so when he's filing with his wife let's go ahead and increase um the uh, amount of money that we allow him to deduct he's got a family and that kind of stuff well then that kind of became oh but the wife and the man are going to be working together they'll both be working they'll double the income and everything you know if if it's it's kind of a um in in all honesty, if we're if we're going to say as a society that women should be out on the workplace along with men, and therefore the expectation is that there's both incomes coming into any single household, then the marriage privilege within the tax system doesn't actually make sense. Um it should be something that applies only, for example, if one of them is not working and then the other would get, say, a non-working spouse privilege or something like that. that. That's the way it should be if we're going to say that both the man and the woman in a marriage ought to be out working, Now, I don't believe that it should be that way anyway. I don't think that should be the expectation. I think there should be a marriage privilege in the tax system. Well, not really. I don't think the individual income tax should exist at all. But to the extent that we're going to say, yes, we're going to do this, yeah, we should privilege marriage, but we should privilege marriage for the purpose of allowing a wife to stay home and not go out into the workplace. And that's what it was there to begin, you know, therefore to begin with. Um, so you see, the, even the, the, um, The claim that, that there's this, this constitutes a aspect of marriage that goes beyond children and sex and that kind of stuff. And therefore I'm, you know, wrong in asserting that, that marriage has lost its meaning. Well, again, you're just pointing at a vestige, something that was put there for a purpose that it's no longer serving. And, you know, as for tax inheritance and so on and so forth, again, the same that's the same thing that the two became one when they got married. So of course, naturally, if one of them dies, the other one retains ownership of everything that the first one had. That's, that's just an expression within inheritance law of that Christian and Jewish concept of marriage of the two becoming one. And I think it goes beyond Christian and Jewish. I think in, in most cultures, um, um, they have a thing that is, you know, however ceremonial or however, you know, whatever mode or form it takes, it still involves this idea that, oh, okay, everything that is one is still the others as well. There may be certain business interest ideas that, that, that may have to be segregated out of that. For example, if a man holds a partnership in a company and that partnership Carries certain, um, you know, uh, voting or decision making rights or something like that. Obviously it, it kind of doesn't work to make it so that those automatically pass to the wife if he dies or something. And a lot of times the, the companies in that case for that reason will have, uh, hold insurance, um, policies on each other to, to say sort of buy that power out from the wife, make sure that she's appropriately compensated for what was truly her husband's and and that she should duly benefit from if he were to pass away but like I said all of these even more so point to the fact that marriage has become a vestige in today's society um, these are the the things that were supposed to uh, take the pendulum and, and connect it to the mechanisms and uh, because marriage has been sort of separated from what it was really about which is raising families It th- these all now amount to a disconnected pendulum swinging on its own um, there's there's no more connection to what it was originally for and then the raising of the families happens on its own separately through whatever mechanisms I mean sometimes we've got a, a mother deciding on her own that she wants to become pregnant and have a child even though she has no intention of getting married Well, you know, honestly, we've done the research. We have scads of knowledge that I think society refuses to acknowledge um, about children and what it takes to properly raise children. Now, I don't mean that every single child who doesn't have this is going to turn into some kind of monster or or, uh, some kind of societal waste or something like that, but and and i don't even mean to imply then that that there's you know some kind of loss of of dignity and preciousness in terms of human life but my point is yes i know that that children who are orphans um have risen above that and made something great of themselves great in terms of becoming a saint or great in terms of doing something you know building a big company or something like that um yes i know this happens that's that's because the the human spirit is is you know so so Deep and 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 uh, wonderful as created by God, but nonetheless, we have loads of research that that tell us that the way to raise a child is with a mother and a father, and hopefully other children too. I think children with brothers and sisters tend to tend to end up doing better and being better at being persons, being people, being you know real people than kids who, who grow up as a, as a single child. And again, not, not in every case, right? I'm, I'm just saying that statistically as a generalization, I think we know this to be the case, but, but more than anything, you need a mother and a father and every child deserves to at least be intended towards having a mother and a father. I don't mean that, that there's like some, uh, you know, like if a child's out there, somebody's obliged to go, be you know, get married in order to become a mother and father and adopt that child maybe or something like that. It's, a, it's, it's kind of one of those things. It's funny when you talk about rights. I'm going to digress here a little bit. You say that somebody has a right to something. Um, well, then often you have to think back and say, do they really? Who, If somebody has a right to something, then who has the obligation to provide that right? Right? You know, it's like... uh is a common thing in the argument um, over the uh, ban of, of smoking in public places, uh, which came into place not not too many years ago in Ohio. Uh, used to be that you go into a restaurant and, and you could smoke, and restaurants, um, they, they have for a while did the thing where they forced them to have the smoking section and the non-smoking section. And some restaurants would be non-smoking, and some restaurants would be smoking, and they would you know, you, you could pick which restaurant you went to, but then Ohio uh, came down with the law and said, okay, no more smoking inside public places. Um, the exception would be if it was like a bar where you prohibited people under 21 or something like that from entering, then you could have smoking inside. But <clears throat> one of the things that was commonly said in those arguments, and I always was against such laws just on grounds of, you know, property rights and the the rights that go along with proprietorship and stuff like that. It's like, hey, if, it, if it's my restaurant, I should get to decide whether or not people can smoke in it. And if you don't like my policy, you don't have to eat at my restaurant. Well, people would say, but I have a right to go out and eat at a restaurant without smoke being in the air from other smokers around me. It's like, oh, you have a right to go out and eat at a restaurant? Is that true? Whose obligation is it to build and run that restaurant for you to exercise your right to go out and eat at it? It's nobody's. Therefore, you don't have a right to go out and eat at a restaurant, let alone eat at a restaurant without smoke being in the air. It's a phantom right. People say that they have rights to things like that all the time that they don't actually have rights to. Well, in this case, I'm saying, yeah, a child has a right to a mother and a father. And and by that, I don't mean that, Given the child, there's somebody who has an obligation to go be the mother and father if that child has lost his own. But what I am saying is this, that the people who bring that child into existence have the obligation to that child of intending to be that child's mother and father. And for someone to bring a child into existence to purposely bring them into existence and to intend to raise them in a situation without a mother or a father that's just child abuse from the get go that's that is to de facto place that child into an abusive situation from the moment they're born to intentionally do that now of course you know we we divorce child rearing from marriage we divorce child bearing from sex in fact it's even gotten so bad that now we have where you can have children you know we had the whole contraception thing you can have sex without having kids well now you can have kids without having sex too we've got the the in vitro fertilization thing you create little babies and then implant them in a woman who wants to have a baby you've got artificial insemination and Instead of having sex with a man, you just have somebody, you know, take a, uh, I don't know, turkey baster? I, I don't know. I don't know how it's done. I don't really want to know how it's done. But, point is, you, you, I mean, we, we have separated children and sex, sex and marriage, children and marriage. These three were supposed to all go together. These three were supposed to be the interior, uh, mechanistic linkage of the clock that drove society. And that's why this is such a critical thing, because these are the family unit is the driver of society. We can't have long-term, a sustainable society without a healthy family unit. And we don't have a healthy family unit unless those three things, marriage, children and sex because children are linked together. As soon as we start pulling those apart letting them all happen outside of contexts of each other, without each other, whatever. We lose our driving force in society. And something will fill that void. It's not like society's going to, you know, necessarily just immediately devolve into barbarism because marriage is divorced from the idea of having children. No, what, what happens is something fills that void now because it doesn't work to raise a child without both a mother and a father, other mechanisms step in to take over that that's you know we have an extreme uh, statism with regards to raising children children's rearing is becoming more and more micromanaged by the state I mean look at all the craziness that we've seen in public schools of course people are starting to wake up to it now and there's there's becoming a backlash and parents are getting back to being involved but That's there to fill that void. The parents didn't want to be parents. They didn't want to be there to raise their children. That's not why they got married. The children was a uh, separate decision. Hey, let's get married. Okay, great. Now we're married. Going around having fun, touring the world, whatever. Should we have kids someday? When that's how children are treated with regards to marriage, it's like, okay, yeah, let's have a child. It's like the child himself has become a decoration to the marriage instead of the point of the marriage. The child is now the vestige, the pendulum that's not really connected to the clock. And of course, in that kind of, with that attitude towards children, the parents aren't going to do what they should be doing to raise him. And so the state is going to step in. And we see that. And, and we'll see it more and more as the state regulates various kinds of human interactions and human transactions. We see, you know, a, a, Vast increase of state and, uh, and when I say state in America, I often mean federal government. Uh, but, but, you know, also in European countries, I'm sure this is happening too. Um, I've heard, you know, nightmares about how, uh, onerous and micromanagerial the, you know, about its rules, the, the European union is and stuff like that. I'd hate to live in Europe. Um, in, in every kind of human transaction and human interaction, um, we have this, this state involvement, the state micromanagement, this set of rules of, you know, you can do this, you can't do this, that. You know, you you can let women use men's bathrooms. You, you have to let women use men's bathrooms. You, you know, you, whatever. It, the state is micromanaging these things. The fact that, that there's even a law about it at a state level for something like that, like bathroom use. Okay. Let the county worry about that. Let the local community worry about that. Let the the owner of the store worry about that. If the guy who owns the store says, yeah, use whatever bathroom you want and people don't like it, they won't shop at a store. Uh, it's handled at a local level. And then if he decides, you know what, that was a dumb decision, he can go back. You don't need to have state policies and laws about stuff like that. But again, people have lost the ability to see the family as the driving unit of society we've we've divorced this this three-part thing that goes together mom and dad their permission to get together and do the act that creates children and their commitment to those children to stay together as a couple and raise those children divorcing all of those from each other children without sex, sex without children, marriage without children, children without marriage, marriage without sex, sex without marriage. That's what's going to create this void that allows a very dystopian style uh, micromanagerial statist type existence. And then from there, it's going to devolve into some kind of barbarism at some point. That's the kind of thing, that's, that's the kind of top heavy system that, can't exist forever, so I don't know. I don't know what what the uh, what the trajectory is uh, going to be that things take. I don't know if there's going to be a recovery of the sense of this stuff through some miracle, and maybe we get back to what's real, reconnect the pendulum to the clock, whatever. I mean, you know, right now you you say, "Hey, I know." Let's we don't we don't need it to be a mother and a father we can have two mothers or two fathers as long as they commit to staying together and then they can adopt a child or you know have a child or whatever not not between each other obviously that doesn't work um and say okay that child's taking care of you know that's like that's like saying hey i want to leave my window open during the storm i don't want the rain to come in but i want the air to still be able to come in oh okay i know Let's take a couple of plastic moldings and slap them on the side of your house on either side of your window. Now you're good. Leave your window open. That's kind of what that's like. Uh, Some people may wake up at some point. Maybe we'll figure it out, get back to, to doing it right. I don't know. But in the meantime, things could get pretty ugly. We'll see. Well, that's about all my thoughts on the matter. And thank you for being with me, and like I said, next week we'll get back to dissecting Desiderio Desideravi. Have a nice day everyone. And as always, circle the beans.